You're listening to. And welcome to Books and Boba, a book club and podcast featuring books by Asian and Asian American authors. My name is Marvin Yeh. And I'm Rira Yu. And today we have an author chat with Kabuti Jane, um, the author of Our Best Intentions. It is a suspenseful drama about an immigrant family caught in a criminal investigation after a high school student gets stabbed. And it is a multi-POV story. Um, actually, it reminded me a lot of Everything I Never Told You by Celeste Ng. I don't know uh, if you thought so as well, Marvin. Yeah, definitely. All of the point of view characters in this story has a very strong interiority. You get to look deep into what they're thinking, um, but are also very poor listeners. <laughs> yeah. And also there's like a sense of mystery to it because you don't really know the truth of what happened uh, behind the assault until the very end of the book. So it was yeah. it was quite a page turner. And uh, we talked to uh, Vib about her experiences as a South Asian American growing up in a largely homogenous town in the East Coast how that uh, helped her create the setting for her book and how she got into the um, different mindsets of her characters. And yeah, it was a really interesting conversation. Yeah, so please enjoy our conversation with Uthi Jane. Here with Vibhuti Jane, the author of Our Best Intentions. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here. Yeah. So your bio says that you worked as a corporate lawyer before. That is very far away from being a novelist. Uh, what made you venture into writing? Was uh, writing a passion you've always had growing up? So I think um, I always loved reading and writing and writing a book has always been a dream of mine since I was a child. Um, I actually wanted to go to law school because I thought I love communication so much that I would like to pursue a career that involves communication. And of course, being a lawyer is a very different type of reading and writing and expressing yourself than writing fiction. Um, and so, you know, yeah, while they're very different, um, the key skills are, are similar. Yeah, we... You're not the first um, author we've interviewed who came from being a lawyer. Um, I think there's, there's like there seems to be some sort of pipeline between um, mm -hmm. being a lawyer, which is a, a profession that requires not a small amount of writing and writing novels, which also requires a ton of writing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it requires a lot of discipline, too. And <laughs> I'm guessing that uh, your, your career definitely uh, prepared you for it. Yeah. So when did you decide that... You were, you were going to write like a novel. So I actually took a long break from both reading and writing um, sort of after I went to law school. So ironically, I went to law school thinking, I love books. I love writing. I love communication. This will be a great career for me. And I found myself so overwhelmed by the demands of my job that I didn't feel like I had space left in my life for creative reading and creative writing. Um, and so I took a fairly long break from 
any sort of aspiration towards writing fiction. Um, and then I ended up actually moving to Johannesburg, South Africa from New York City in 2015. And at the time, I made a career switch from corporate law to international development. Uh, and my career ended up being more predictable in terms of working hours, which meant I also knew when I would not be working. And then I just felt this creeping desire to do something creative, to use that part of my mind. And I, so I started kind of taking baby steps. I started reading again. Um, I enrolled in a few online writing classes. I didn't really have a writing community in South Africa and started writing essays weekly, sending them off into the internet, um, you know, discussing writing with my virtual class. And then um, from there, I ended up going to a writer's conference in Southampton for a summer. And that really gave me the motivation to write a book because going to a writer's conference is like going to a summer camp for people who want to write. You're just like immersed in fiction in this, you know, not real feeling world. And um, yeah, and then I was, I was pretty motivated. I was like, this is something I've always wanted to do. I'm going to do it. And I did it for myself. Yeah, I think it's really important to find a writing community when you're first starting out because you definitely mm -hmm. need uh, the encouragement and also the feedback that you get from your peers. Um, but your debut novel, Our Best Intentions, uh, I heard from the grapevine that it stemmed from a conversation with an Uber driver that you've had a couple of years ago. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah. So um, when I set my mind on writing a novel, I started looking around in my everyday life for inspiration. So, you know, really thinking about the people I met, you know, what we talk about, things I read in the news, what I was watching on TV. And I just so happened to be visiting my parents back in Connecticut. I was in an Uber from JFK going to their house and my Uber driver started telling me about a series of violent incidents that took place in this nice Westchester suburb. Um, and that sort of sparked um, the genesis of the plot of my novel. I started really thinking about what he was telling me and really um, thinking about, you know, a lot of things I talk about in the book, which is access to public education and how it's not actually really public or, you know, it's a different, it's a very different experience for those of us who can afford um, higher, uh, higher, you know, property tax communities for those of us who can't. Um, I started thinking about how we as Indian Americans talk about our role in the dialogue on race. My, my driver also happened to be Indian American. And um, I think, you know, Indian Americans, Asian Americans more generally, we often embrace this, this model minority myth when it suits us and other times we shy away from it. And so that conversation really sparked the plot of the book uh, and sort of as an homage to that inspiration, one of the main characters is in fact an Uber driver. Yeah, it was interesting because actually it might, I have cousins who live in Scarsdale, which is like in that area. Yeah. And I've only experienced that through like the one weekend I was visiting them. But how did you go about kind of capturing that, that setting? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I grew up in Connecticut in a fairly homogenous town. Um, I think it's gotten more diverse since I was growing up, but not quite the same as Southern California. And um, I was one of the only, you know, non-white kids in my public high school. I remember feeling very um, isolated and also just really terrified of standing out. Um, my town was 
you know, a little bit less affluent than the towns I described, but I've spent a lot of time in the areas surrounding New York City. And so a lot of this, while not based on a single place, um, is really inspired from some of my observations about how these places feel. Yeah, I did um, relate to the fact that your character's, you know, affluent high school was named after the indigenous people that used to live in that area because um, that's also like my high school is also mm-hmm. named after um, our local indigenous um, people. Although for some reason, my high school, my high school was established in like 1995. So I was maybe like the fifth graduating class, so relatively modern. But when they named our high school, they, they decided to name it after the Spanish name for the people and not their actual name, which was really, really wild. But it was some sort of like strange sort of representation for me to see like, yeah, this is kind of mm-hmm. nonsense people like who have the best intentions, but like don't really live up to it. <laughs> yeah, I think, um, you know, I'm not as familiar with um Southern California or just California in general, um, having never lived there. But I think for anyone who's grown up in the Northeast, so many places commemorate um, Indigenous people, whether it's town names, river names, street names, high school mascots, that for me, that was a big part of my experience growing up. And I remember just being very perplexed by it as um, a young person and feeling like, I don't understand why we're, there's so much sort of homage given to people that don't that that are no longer there and there's no real like meaningful um effort made to understand them. Yeah, I mean, I grew up in the East Coast and um yeah, it was like really it was really strange uh growing up and um just like hearing about like Native Americans and how they whitewashed history and I thought that like added a very like fun accent to the conversation that you um you like have in your book on like these self-described progressive parents in this very like um quote-unquote liberal town and their high school mascot is a native american and it's like is this the representation that you know i don't think i think they missed the mark on the diverse representation but that that is kind of like a theme that you play around in your book, like best intentions, good intentions. Sometimes it's not enough. Sometimes it mm-hmm. actually causes a lot more damage than uh, they originally think. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. I mean, I thought a lot about um, what motivates people. Um, and, and actually, like, as you mentioned, um, the title of the book is really, um, really captures that. I think when I was writing this, I thought a lot about how, So often we encounter people that we think are so different from us or who act so differently from us. And we just assume that there's no common ground between us and them. And, um, you know, we just, we just dismiss that person. We say, I'm nothing like them because they acted like this. And yet when we really think about what motivates people and distill them down to their core beliefs, ironically, even people whom we find so different from us often are just looking for the same thing. They're looking for, to better themselves looking out for their loved ones. And that's really what I was trying to capture in the book. But of course, as you mentioned, Rira, there's a lot of sort of intentions becoming distorted. Um, so yeah, that was that's just something that interests me about human interaction. Yeah. Like one of the ways you explore that is a lot of your characters in your book are parents and their main drive is like, you know, protecting their kids at, at all costs. And, and you explore the way that 
those good intentions can kind of turn toxic, right? In ways that either they inadvertently hurt their children or or hurt the community at large. Uh, can you talk to us a little bit about you know, writing those like complicated relationships. Yeah, absolutely. So um, you're absolutely right. One of the, you know, key themes in the book kind of drawing upon what we were just talking about is how people's intentions can often become distorted. And specifically the book has um, a number of characters who are parents who have children enrolled in this public school where there's been an assault and each of the parents is trying to figure out what is the most sure way to protect my child. Um, and how can I do that? Um, so, and, and because they're each very differently positioned in terms of access to resources, understanding the system, ability to have their voice heard, you see them behave in dramatically different ways. Um, so even though at heart, they're each trying to just protect their child the option set available to each of them is very different. So for example, one of the main characters, Babur Singh, um, doesn't really have the ability to have, you know, the police listen to him in this criminal investigation. But um, he, like the other parents in town, wants to protect his daughter, Angela. And so he wants to try to get her as uninvolved in this investigation as he can. He also just wants to secure their financial future. And that really affects how the advice he gives her, how he responds, um, and just his overall perspective. Similarly, um, you have the McCleary family, a much more affluent family whose son was injured in this assault. They know how the system, quote unquote, works, and they're able to get the attention of the police. They're able to get the intention of the school superintendent. And so they're able to behave in ways that may not be available to others. Um, and may even raise questions about, you know, how much do you really care about others? But again, they're just trying to protect their child. Yeah. Also, they have so, lots of money and lawyers, which which helps too. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, exactly. like you're progressive until it's inconvenient, until it threatens your your livelihood. Uh, but mm-hmm. yeah, like uh, the character of Babur, like. I thought it was really interesting because I haven't read a lot of books where you have a single South Asian mm-hmm. dad who's raising a kid all on his own, um, especially when like they're not a widow either. Um, mm-hmm. Angie's Angie's mother like actually left the marriage. Can you talk more about what made you uh, go in that direction? Yeah, so you're absolutely right. The family is not. I guess, a typical nuclear family unit, especially in South Asian communities. I am, you know, I wanted to write about topics that interest me and intrigue me. And I think one of them is the stigma around talking about things like mental health, um, which is sort of the specter that comes up when um, issues about the mother or the wife who leaves the Singh family arise. Secondly, I think a lot of immigrant communities, including the South Asian community, there's a real pressure to not leave a marriage, at least in in the first generation. And so um, I, I wanted to write a story that really looked at what happens when things don't work out the way that we feel societal pressure for them too. And what does that relationship between a father and daughter look like? Because I don't think there's been a lot written about single fathers Um, I recently also became a mom. And so I've thought about some of these issues much more since then. And even though I absolutely love being a mother, I do think there's this 
um, undue expectation on women to just have this innate maternal instinct or innate desire to home make, even when, you know, even though it's 2023. Um, and so I wanted to write a, a story that maybe didn't um, have those those same assumptions, you know, built in. Yeah, Barbara's such an interesting character because you see him, and your book has multiple viewpoints, so we see everyone's kind of interiority each chapter. And with Barbara, like, you see him as a guy who's just trying his best with, like, what he's given and, like, providing his daughter with, you know, everything she needs to survive. Food, transportation, like, all the basic necessities, but can't, like, break through to, like, whatever this teen ennui she's going through. And you feel bad for him. But at the same time, you also kind of see his interior thoughts about his wife, why she left him, his thoughts about depression, his thoughts about like race. And you're like, man, what an immigrant dad, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> like you see his like paternalistic views on things. And you kind of also like, oh, I, I thought it was really interesting that you, I simultaneously sympathize with them, but also wanted to like yell at them through, through his chapters. And I think that's something <laughs> really well in your book is right characters that like, oh, I sympathize with you, but also don't like you right now. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, look, I grew up with immigrant parents and while, you know, I can't say Bobber is based on any single person, I do sometimes think about all the pressures my parents faced to just make it, like to just set us up for some sort of stability in a new country and in a new environment. And when they're acting in a way that's frustrating, I really try to think about, I mean, I, I don't think I was able to do this in the moment. I don't know that I still am, but you know, when I was writing, I was really trying to think about what, why, why would someone kind of dismiss emotional well-being? Well, it's because he's so concerned with how his daughter is faring, you know, physically, like, is she eating enough? Is she sleeping enough? Is she, you know, going to school um, that he's not able to, to, he doesn't have like the mental capacity to think about how's she doing? Is she sad? Does she have friends? Um, you know, does she want to talk to me about something? So I, I tried to tap into that. Yeah, I think a lot of uh, blue collar immigrant families, especially like assimilation or aligning with the rich, white and powerful, it's seen as like the only way to survive. It is the only way to succeed in America and activism and just like fighting social injustices that takes a backseat because you're trying mm-hmm. to survive. Um, and obviously this is a culture gap uh, that's, you know, uh, exacerbated by, uh, you know, first and second generation immigrant uh, families. Um, how do you think this cultural gap can be bridged? Like how can like, how can people like Bobber and his daughter Angie kind of bridge uh, bridge those differences? Because there is a chapter where they do have a very difficult conversation and it doesn't go uh, quite mm-hmm. as well as the reader would hope. That's such an interesting question. And actually, you, you, um, you, you know, kind of asked it so nicely because I actually was thinking about this a lot when I was writing these characters and I described it exactly as you did, which is not only is there this generational divide between the father and daughter, but there's this cultural divide, which makes it even harder for them to understand one another. So in getting to your question, how do you bridge this divide? I think that's, I think that's really difficult. I don't know that there's an easy way to do that. 
Because I think there's always going to be that difference between this generation that came to a new place and just really needs to get their bearings and lay a foundation and the generation that comes after that has the ability to see beyond their basic necessities for survival and think about things longer term. Like, how do I set myself up for a more equitable existence? How do I speak out for myself? Um, What does it mean to, um, you know, beyond fitting in, what does it actually mean to redefine what it means to be American and mainstream to include me rather than conform myself? So I guess all this is to say, I don't know that there's an answer, but I do think one of the things I tried to do when write when writing this is at least if we try to see other people's perspectives, like Marvin just said about wanting to yell at the father, but simultaneously kind of understanding where he's coming from. I think if we just are able to see where someone's coming from, it just makes it easier to sometimes give them a little bit of the benefit of a doubt. Yeah, I mean, so, um, yeah. it really your book really reminded me of a lot of difficult conversations that I've had with my immigrant parents, uh, especially uh, during the George Floyd um, uh, protests. Like my parents didn't quite understand why it was such a big deal that people were showing up on the streets despite uh, COVID. Uh, why? Um, mm-hmm. Like why I was so upset because there is anti-blackness in the Asian American community. And it is so, it's just so impossible sometimes to get that generation to meet you halfway. And um, like you said, I don't think there is an easy answer to it, but I think attempting to have the conversation is definitely a good direction to go in. Uh, But your book is largely about like how privilege plays a role in whose stories uh, gets told, gets amplified and Mm -hmm. whose story gets silenced. Uh, How did you go about choosing which characters would get uh, their voice on page? And I thought it was really interesting how you saved uh, Kiara's POV until the very end. So was that something that you've always intended? So I was very intentional about choosing to center the story around the same family. I mean, I think it's really important as a writer to um, write characters you think you can authentically capture. And I just felt like based on my own life experiences as an Indian American, having parents who are first generation, um, growing up in the Northeast in a fairly homogenous town, that was a story. Those were two characters whose stories I could really tell. Um, and those were two characters who I wanted the, the novel to center around. Um, I chose to include other characters' perspectives um, primarily to try to, um, one, share details that were maybe outside the perspective of the two main characters, but two, to also try to shed light on um, other voices that often get overlooked. So, for example, the voice of the principal, whom in many cases sort of serves as a scapegoat for, um, you know, decisions that were made by the school district, Um, even the voice of Chris Collins, not a very likable character, but in many ways a kid who's been bullied and therefore becomes a bully. Um, I was very intentional about not including the the McCleary family, whose voices are definitely heard and whose truth becomes the truth, um, because I just feel like they didn't need a space on the page in order for their story to be told. Um, I did actually really think about how to tell Kiara's story in a way that would 
um, do her character justice. And so much of the novel is about how different members of the community objectify her or use her as a symbol for various um, means. Um, and they make assumptions about her uh, or, you know, in the case of Angie, they sometimes romanticize her um, like, you know, not in a romantic sense, but sort of have other like see something in her that maybe they, they aren't like see a connection with her that maybe doesn't exist, um, like a friendship connection. But um, yeah, I think for the reader, I wanted to provide some closure on her. And I just felt like the story would be unfinished without that. So, so I did want to save some information that I feel like helps tie up some loose ends for the end. And that's why I decided to put her perspective toward the end of the book. Something that I think you did really well in the book was keeping uh, the tension up, like the, just like this unsettling feeling of like, but this, is this right? Like you, you're spinning the story uh, in a way where it's, you know, that's, it's just benefiting the, the powerful already. Um, and this was not a feel good read. Like for me, it was like, I was angry throughout, uh, reading this book. It just felt like this pressure cooker of just like bubbling anger. And I don't know if, um, non-BIPOC authors, uh, non-BIPOC readers will feel the same way. Um, but yeah, like going going back to the craft of it, like how did you go about keeping the tension up and uh, keeping that, I guess, anger there throughout the entire mm. book? It's so interesting you describe it that way. So, I mean, I think when I wrote this, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't recall myself feeling angry. Um, I think I really, you know, I think this is maybe where my legal training comes in. I really wanted to try to understand, like, why do people act the way they do? And I really wanted to try to figure that out. Um, like, I just think about that in everyday situations so often when I have a disagreement with someone. And so for me, it was almost like this like dissection exercise, like this human psychology exercise. Um, I mean, I hope, you know, non-BIPOC readers don't walk away feeling alienated. I guess my intent in writing it wasn't to make any one group feel bad, but to just kind of say like, maybe we should think about other people's perspectives, or maybe we should also think about the things that we've just come to normalize. Like living in a wealthier town affords you access to better public resources. And we just take that for granted. Um, or, you know, some people can afford um, things that set them up for a better life from a very young age, like Angie not being able to afford going to a swim club, whereas her, you know, best friend could. Um, so yeah, I think how I kept up the tension was, I think that's such a, that's such a good question. I think I just felt like there were so many layers of misunderstanding and miscommunication and misinterpretation to unpack. And these are all things that really fascinate me. And I think that's kind of what kept the tension in the novel up. Yeah. I will say I felt very angry reading the Chris Collins chapters. Um, I thought that that kid sucked. <laughs> even, even when I felt like, oh, I guess 
I should have some sympathy. No, I had no sympathy for that boy. <laughs> oh my gosh, Marvin. I mean, like for me, it was it was like he's a kid. There is there's still time for him to realize like his his thoughts stem from misunderstanding pre preconceptions of someone's race and also just misogynistic uh, beliefs that are just kind of ingrained in society. Because like when we think about how kids go to college or they they're finally independent from their parents and they leave their hometown, a lot of people change. A lot of people are able to, uh, you know, kind of like you said earlier, like kind of dissect why uh, people think a certain way, why they have these beliefs. So, yeah, I mean, for me, I was like, oh, Chris, Chris sucks. But um, as someone who (laughs) as someone who knew plenty of Chris's and as someone who also had a lot of like uh, racial inner racial bias and had to like unlearn all of that thing, um, I, I like definitely related. And I thought you wrote Chris's POV pretty well. He was way more sympathetic than I am. I don't know about that. I'm, I'm not a good person because I was clearly, I was very angry throughout reading this book. So clearly, I, I have some issues. Um, yeah, that was a hard. It was it was a hard character to write. Um, and like you said, I think we all know people like that. But I guess it's just as almost classic case of a bully also feeling like mirroring slights that he's experienced throughout his life and not knowing how to to productively channel his own disappointment. Um, It doesn't excuse his behavior, but at least it gives you some insight into it. And I think there's a point towards the end of the book that I won't really give away where I think also, you know, he and Bobber have an interaction. And I think Bobber also thinks about, okay, this guy is just a kid. Yeah. So it's a tough point of view to write. One thing that I really related to in your book was uh, Angela's um, like compulsion to have two different identities, one identity at home and one identity at school, uh, being the best friend of Sam, who is like kind of like the popular girl and also just being part of um, the swim team, like she has a very clear identity. Um, was this something that you also uh, grappled with growing up? Like, did you have um, the same, I guess, like discomforts as Angela growing up in your skin, in your own skin? Because I feel like that's something that a lot of uh, Asian American uh, adults can now uh, look back and and say, yeah, mm-hmm. it was it was a growing pain. <laughs> Yeah, you're 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 so right. I think growing up in a household where we spoke a different language, where we ate different food than everyone else, where we had different traditions, it just felt to me as a teenager in this very homogenous town like the biggest source of embarrassment. I remember just wanting to feel like I could just erase all differences between myself and my classmates when I was in public and I remember feeling very tortured by this feeling like I had to have a different identity at home than I did outside of the home. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think it's it's going to be really interesting to see how the next generation responds to that, like the third generation, which is, you know, now going to be a critical mass in the coming years and how they are able to navigate an inside life and outside life that maybe isn't as different and doesn't feel as tormented. But absolutely, I could relate to a lot of how she felt. I, I do feel like... Uh 
the younger generation, the current younger generation, they do grapple with um, moving among different identities, especially because of social media. You know, you have your mm. uh, your image that you're projecting to the world while you also have like your <laughs> private like private group chat with your friends. So um, I think that that is one way that that is a little bit different, but relatively the same. Mm-hmm. Um, but Angela is a gifted swimmer and I just really admired like the level of focus that she had. Uh, what mm-hmm. made you want to make her into a swimmer? I, yeah, I thought really hard about that. In fact, I've been asked by a lot of people if I was a competitive swimmer. I was not, I cannot swim as well as Angela, but I knew that I wanted to write a character who had a lot of inner strength. And for me, showing her as a really good swimmer um, depicted just exactly as you said, um, inner strength, perseverance, determination, focus. And I think it's an interesting juxtaposition because if you were to ask Angie, um, as you know, a sophomore in high school, if she sees herself as all those things, I don't think she would say that. I think she didn't necessarily even recognize that strength within her. I think she was socially awkward, shy, um, self-conscious, and hadn't yet come into her own voice. And so by showing her as so good at this one very taxing activity, sort of hint to the fact that there is a very solid person underneath all of that yeah and such also such a perfect way to illustrate like class right like swimming is a sport that to excel in you need a lot of resources put in and that's just not available to like your your typical blue-collar immigrant family and there's a reason why a lot of the people who, who compete at the highest levels are from a certain background yeah, I I hadn't really thought about like how like Angela like growing up she didn't have easy access to swimming pools. Like I feel like nowadays we take it for granted because uh there's just like so many community centers and like public pools, but um that is not the case everywhere. And uh this isn't just like with swimming either. I feel like this is also uh, with like musical instruments, for example, like mm-hmm. there's definitely a class mm-hmm. divide in that. Um, even if you go to school where, you know, you rent your instruments, like everybody starts at the same level uh, as you grow older, um, the more resources you have, like if you get private lessons, for example, you're you have more of a chance of uh, succeeding and uh, having like having a career in that field. And, you know, it's not the kids fault but a lot of burden is put on their shoulders like i feel like they have a lot of pressure to succeed but when the cards are so stacked against you mm-hmm. yeah it's it's hard <laughs> yeah and i think um in the book you know there's a point in time when you know angie's kind of thinking about how her father doesn't really get it how he thinks if you just work really hard you can make it, you know, really buying into this myth that it is hard work alone that gets you to where you are, which I think as you, you know, as we know, um, isn't, doesn't tell you the whole story. I mean, you need resources as well, often to get to the next level. And that is a source of frustration between her and her father. Yeah. I also love that Angie became 
really good at swimming because her father used swimming classes as childcare uh, when she was growing mm-hmm. up. Um, was there like a class that your parents stuck you in while they were working? You know, um, so my mom was, um, when I was really young, my mom was actually a stay-at-home mom, but she used to enroll me in a lot of activities that I didn't want to do because she just thought it would be good for me, um, like at our community center or at our like local, you know, uh, at the local school. And I remember just being so annoyed with her. For her, it wasn't as much childcare as she was trying to like expose me to everything in a way that we wouldn't have had access to if we had to pay a lot of money for these things, but they were like quasi public resources. And she was really excited about it. Um, Cause you know, I think that having access to things at a public library or public school is such an American um, concept for someone who, you know, grew up in, in India. So I had similar, but different experience. Yeah. My mom signed me up for a watercolors class, I remember, like a painting class, and then tennis, which I was really bad at. So n- none of those <laughs> went anywhere. I never got to um, Angie Lobo's uh, proficiency in any of those. I, I'm actually, I, I actually find it pretty funny that Angie stuck with swimming, you know, like mm-hmm. it wasn't something that mm-hmm. she hated later on, because I feel like yeah. you said, a lot of parents, they put their kids in all of these activities, uh, just trying to like expose them to you know, trying to like cultivate their talent if they if they have one and also for childcare. But it's it's just like really funny to me that Angela's like, no, this is my thing. And it yeah. it gives me weight. It gives me a sense of gravity. And um, in this book where so many things are out of control, it makes sense that swimming is the one thing that's like holding her down. And when that's being threatened, uh, when people threaten to take that away, it's kind of like the last straw. So um, I really liked how you made and I really liked how you developed Angie, Angie's relationship with swimming and how that was um, weaved into the narrative of your book. So well done. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Yeah, I thought about that actually a lot because I think a few people have commented and said it's ironic that she um, embraced swimming, even though her father kind of pushed her into it. And I think it also says a little bit of something about her fact that she kind of wanted to, to seek his approval. Um, she wanted to be the good kid, um, and then ended up really liking it. Yeah. Sometimes it works out, uh, perfectly. Yeah. (laughs) Well, your book's been out for, uh, a few weeks now. Um, how, how has the reception been? What have you been surprised about um, hearing from the readers? Yeah, the reception's been great. It is, um, it's been so surreal. This is my first book to actually have these characters that just like lived as imaginary friends in my head um, out in the world and have other people that I don't know responding and commenting and asking me questions. I think that's been a really bizarre experience. Um, I think it's interesting that, uh, you know, when I've engaged with people, um, from, you know, different age groups, different, uh, parts of the country, different backgrounds. A lot of the questions they ask about the book are very similar. So I've been asked a lot of questions about, is there a sequel? Um, why did you, uh, choose to tell this from multiple perspectives? Do you have a favorite character? And so I just think it's so interesting that despite having such different readers, the things people respond to seem to be very, um, universal in a way. Um, so that's been kind of fun. Uh, it's also just been fun to to talk about it and hear people's reactions. 
um, to this thing that just felt like my, my like special project, um, and, and have it now out in the world. So, so it's been, it's been really exciting and interesting. Have you noticed a difference between uh, the response of your American readers versus like your South African readers? Because I feel like the whole conflict of quote unquote cheating your way to a better public school is so American. So yeah. I wonder if like of readers outside of America can really relate to that. Yeah, I think, you know, the, the specific context of the plot is very, very American, but I think the ideas behind it are more universal. I mean, in, in South Africa specifically, I think um, race and class are just at the forefront of a lot of people's existence. It's a very racialized society in a different but similar respect to the U.S. Um, it's also one of the most unequal places in the world. So I think the idea of people using their privilege or resources to get their way or to be heard is very familiar to people here. So I would say, well, the nuances might be different. I think the general ideas and concepts and observations on human behavior are, are very relatable. Yeah. I mean, ever, everyone does a little grifting. And I think that's very apparent <laughs> in the way that you portray Bobber, which is a guy who is looking for any possible way to like to get ahead to support his family um i really love the way you wrote his interactions with the richer people and him feeling fundamentally disappointed in all of them because they're not as like smart or charismatic as, as mm -hmm. he imagined rich people would be yeah i thought about that a lot and um yeah i mean i think we've all had experiences where you know just like in our professional lives or personal lives where you kind of build up this idea of a person or a thing and then you experience it like and you, or you you experience that thing or you interact with that person and you're just kind of left thinking, huh, that's that's what I thought. Yeah. <laughs> so so I think he has that a lot, even if he doesn't admit it to himself. Yeah. Well, we're not going to ask you if there's a sequel, but are you working on anything? Right <laughs> um, I am. I'm working on a, a second book with different characters. Um, it's um, really about how we kind of, look for happiness in like how, how we can kind of fall into this trap of looking for happiness outside of ourselves. And it's about a woman who feels very trapped in her existence and reconnects with an old friend whom she is really jealous of and just kind of gets unhealthily intertwined with her life and loses herself, but also doesn't find the happiness that she craves um, in the process. Sounds really interesting. Sounds like a good time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So very different, but it's it's really fun. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Vibhuti, for joining us on Books and Boba. It was so great to talk to you. And congratulations on your debut novel. And yeah, looking forward to the next one. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. This was really fun. Thanks. And that was Vibhuti Jane, the author of Our Best Intentions, available now at booksellers everywhere. Um, definitely check it out. It was quite the page turner. And I think it's something that our audiences, our, our Books and Bulba audiences will really enjoy. Um, and if you are interested in purchasing the book after listening to our interview, um, might I direct you to the Books and Bulba bookshop? where we feature all the books written by guests of Books and Bulba, as well as um, lots of specialized lists um, curated by Rira books that you purchase on bookshop um, do support the books and Bowl podcast as well as your local bookstore so we do appreciate this support 
Um, before we go, um, we still have one week before our discussion episode of our April book club pick, um, Rira. Can you remind us what we are reading? Yeah, we are reading Vera Wong's Unsolicited Advice for Murderers by Jesse Q. Sutanto. We've had Jesse on the show before to talk about her book, Dial A for Aunties. Uh, and Vera Wong's Unsolicited Advice for Murderers also kind of falls in that vein of murder comedy. So I'm really excited to discuss it with Marvin because, as you all know, murder is my jam. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm very excited. And if you guys have already read the book, we'd love to hear your thoughts on Goodreads. Um, and also just hit us up on Twitter and Instagram because we do check those. <laughs> I know it doesn't seem like it, but we do. Yeah, we're still on Twitter for the time being. And if you want to check out and and we also have a new Discord server um, in case you missed it. We launched our Patreon earlier this week and subscribers to our Patreon will get to um, have access to our brand new Books and Boba Discord server where you'll be able to chat with us about books and other things in real time. So if you're interested in checking that out, um, please support our Patreon at patreon.com slash books and boba. But with that, that'll do it for this episode of Books and Boba. Uh, thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you all next time. Bye, everybody. Bye. Hey, Ryan, what's black and white and red all over? I don't know, Ramen. Two nuns having a chainsaw fight? Dude, inappropriate. Come on, man. This is supposed to be a podcast promo for our secret underground podcast, Quarantine Comics. Oh, yes. Quarantine Comics, the weekly comic book club where I, ace reporter Ryan Joe, and I, mild-mannered Ramen Sutton, team up to discuss some of comics' greatest works. Or just some really cool comics that we've been wanting to read. From Alan Moore to Uzumaki. From Arrakis to Zendaya. From Adrian Tomine to Jean Luniang. You might might not have heard of half the stuff that we're reading. Or the other half is just pop culture superhero stuff. They could just read the books with us, right? Yes, they could do that, but you could also just send us money. No, Ryan, that's not how passion podcast projects work. Why in the hell are we even doing this? Uh, I'm sure we'll be back by next week's episode. <clears throat> so, tune in each week to Quarantine Comics. That's qtdcomics.com. Set phasers to fun.
And that was Maureen Gu. Her latest novel, Throwback, um, is available now at bookstores everywhere, including our Books and Bow bookshop. As always, if you um, purchase a book off of our online bookstore, um, not only do you support your local bookstores, but also the Books and Boba podcast. And we do appreciate everyone who's bought off of our bookstore. Um, you can probably find all of Maureen's books, actually, in our bookshop. So definitely check it out. They're all a lot of fun. Yeah. I think comedy is definitely Maureen Gu's uh, <laughs> like bread and butter. I had such a fun time reading this book. Yeah. All right. Um, so before we go, um, Rira, why don't you remind us what we are reading for book club this month? So our April 2023 book club pick is Vera Wong's Unsolicited Advice for Murderers. And it's by Jesse Q. Sutanto, the author of Dal A for Aunties. Uh, the book is about a 60-year-old widow who runs a tea shop in San Francisco's Chinatown. And uh, she finds a body with uh, a flash drive. Just It just shows up in, in her tea shop. And she's, she thinks that she can do a better job than the investigators. So she investigates the murder herself. Um, yeah. I absolutely love this premise because I am like a Miss Marple fan. <laughs> so I'm all about like old ladies and like, like nosy um, civilian detectives. So I'm very excited to read this book. Yeah. So please read along with us. Um, if you've already finished the book and have things to say about it, please let us know on our Goodreads forums. Um, this is a murder mystery. So please use spoiler tags if you are going to be discussing anything related to the solving of the mystery. Um, but yeah, looking forward to including your feedback on our book discussion episode. Um, but with that, that'll do it for this episode of Books and Boba. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you on next time. Bye, everybody. Bye.
Hi, I'm Quincy Cho. And I'm Kaycon Apu. And we host Marvel Makeup. It's a podcast where I teach Quincy a little about Marvel. And I teach Kay a little bit about makeup. Join us as we watch and talk about every movie and TV show in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which I'm mostly watching for the first time. And join us as we apply makeup stuff to our faces, which I'm using for the first time. Marvel Makeup is part of the Potluck Podcast Collective, and you can find new episodes every other Monday wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can catch video versions of Marvel Makeup on our YouTube channel. So please rate, review, and subscribe. And please give us five stars so our Asian moms will understand why we buy so much electronic equipment. Because it's for this podcast, Marvel Makeup.